the reason that I think we go it alone is exactly what you hit on, which is fear. We fear that other people will feel like we are incompetent. We fear that other people will see us as, as not worth it or not up to the challenge. And that's just not true. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. You've joined the Triple H series, the Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. And on today's episode, I'm very pleased to bring to you Dr. Lorraine Dean. Hi, Lorraine. How are you? Hi, Kim. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. Well, you know me. I love to talk with people and learn new stuff. I would love for you to start with telling everybody out in podcast land who you are and what you do here at Hopkins. Sure. Happy to share. I'm an assistant professor in epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I am a social epidemiologist. So what that means is I think about the social context for what people do, why they do it, when and where they do it, and the implications that has for people's health. Most of the work that I've done focuses on cancer and HIV outcomes, so I define myself as doing social determinants of survivorship. What are those things that people are doing after they've been diagnosed with something that leads them to have a better life or conversely, poor or adverse health outcomes? Well, that's near and dear to my heart. I have a similar background and interest in social epidemiology after I got my my BA, MA, PhD are all in sociology specializing in gerontology for my doctoral program. Then I got another master's at Pitt in epidemiology. And I've focused on large-scale epidemiologic studies of factors associated with quality of life and depressive symptomatology in older age, looking at primarily African-American and white differences. When I was doing some research on you, I sensed a lot of overlap and similarity, in addition to, of course, recognizing you and knowing you from the Emerging Women's Leadership Program. So I'm so excited that you're with us. And I always love hearing from people who are like, I think of in my tribe, people who get me and understand social factors. And so um, Mm -hmm. what kinds of wonderful habits or hacks or routines or practices did you want to share with us today? Well, I thought I'd talk about my experience as a junior faculty. As I mentioned before, I'm an assistant professor and I've been at Hopkins since 2016, though before that I was in a pseudo-faculty role at the University of Pennsylvania. I still consider myself in that junior faculty, not quite, I would say emerging mid-career at some point faculty member. Uh And I really felt like coming to Hopkins, I got quite an initiation in terms of thinking about how do I set myself up for success in these years? And how do I think about that in terms of the many years in which an academic career unfolds? And that's probably the first tip that I have. And I can't take credit for these ideas. Many of the ideas that I got and many of the things that I've done as a junior faculty member are based on advice from other people, sometimes that senior faculty members. There's also a really helpful book that I read by the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity that's specifically geared toward junior faculty. And the book that I use that's been a helpful reference to me is really geared toward Black faculty members. I'm a Black faculty member, but could be used for really anyone. It's called The Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul. One of the things that it talks about is, one, thinking about your career in chapters and stages. 
and essentially thinking about what do you need when you're here at this stage compared to what do you need to be doing in later stages. And that's been really helpful for me. I'm a person who likes to be involved. I get excited. I show up at Hopkins. It's like being a kid in a candy store. There's so many things to do. But it really made me pause and think about, okay, what do I need to be doing to be successful as a junior faculty member? And what are some of the things, maybe the service and leadership roles that I could do later? But my first goal as a junior faculty member, and I will say this to all junior faculty members, is to get a strong foundation. When you think about that first chapter, get a strong foundation in the research that you want to do and in the collaborations that you would like to establish for the rest of your career. Lorraine, could you just pause there because this is so valuable and I'm so, I admire how smart you are and the wisdom you have to have thought about setting yourself up for success like this because I know I didn't think like this. To me, I was kind of marching through my schooling, next step, next step, next step, you know, as we all kind of march through and see what's up on the docket next, what degree, what test, what dissertation, what fellowship, you know, and then what grants, and you just kind of plow through. And I was not strategic at all like this. So, and I wonder, could you show me or give an example of what a bad foundation would be? So we all kind of, you've mentioned a bunch of things that make a lot of sense, you know, getting a mentoring team and, and getting the advice from other folks and, and getting your science down. And that kind of makes sense to me, but where, where, um, where does that look wrong? Like what are, what is the mistake that, that you've seen people make or you were close to making? Well, one of the beauties of public health research, or at least one of the things that I really like, is that it is a team approach. We use a team approach. We are collaborative in nature. Mm. So one of the areas that I see many people fall down in early on is not establishing good collaborations, right? Mm. They get this mindset that I have to do it myself. Gosh, I need to apply for all of these grants myself. Mm. I need to figure out how to stay funded all by myself. And more and more, I'm realizing, wait a second, wait a second. We should actually be thinking about this in terms of teams. I don't need to lead every grant in every paper. There are some things that I can lead, keep those that are near and dear to me and lead those. But then there are other things that I can be on of other people that I don't have to lead as much and that I don't have to have all of my top effort and energies into, but that I can still be and make a helpful contribution to. So I would say... Keeping it to yourself is a big failure, right? Not asking out, reaching for help, not really sharing what you're doing with other people. Because I think as you share that work with other people and what you're doing, they can either come alongside you and help you, or they can point you to resources. Or sometimes they say, oh, you know what? You're doing something very interesting. I can have you involved in my project. I'll give you a really concrete example. Some of the work that I was doing, I had a K01 grant when I came in. I had a career development grant from the NIH as I started Hopkins. And one of the things that I was looking at is the role of consumer credit after a breast cancer diagnosis. I was able to share about this at a faculty meeting. And then afterwards, several faculty members came up to me and said, you know, I've never thought about credit scores as part of thinking about a context for health. Maybe we can add it to my project. And so now... I've been able to publish with several other people in other departments on credit scores and health outcomes. And now I'm actually funded through someone else's grant to add expertise around credit scores and health outcomes and and mental health for older adults. 
I don't generally do research in older adults necessarily. I do research in cancer and HIV specifically, but I don't see myself as an aging researcher, but I can bring this unique expertise to this project that I don't have to lead, but can still be part of being of the support and the support team and what I build as part of my career. Dr. Dean, that, you know, as soon as I asked that question and stopped mumbling and fumbling, trying to get the question out, what was in my head was the biggest mistake I made, which was mm-hmm. going solo. And then you talked yeah. about exactly that. So I'll tell you, this is, there no, my pastor always said there are no such thing as coincidences. And this is so important that you said the exact one thing that I, um, coming upon the age of 60, I still struggle with this feeling like I have to do everything myself. Oh, bother, yes. like the whole Eeyore mentality of why is everything up to me and I have to do everything. And that feeling was absolutely when I was starting out. I felt like I had to be the expert in everything, the write yes. all my grants all by myself, never ask for help because I wouldn't want to be perceived as being weak. Exactly. And, and, and incompetent and not deserving. And the people might say, the imposter syndrome, like how you're asking me to help you. So I cannot believe, well, I can believe it that you pointed out and that you are so on top of this so early. I'm so happy for you that you figured this out. And folks out there listening, Dr. Dean is exactly right. Again, I am toward the end of my career and I'm still struggling with that nonsense of feeling like I'm all alone. You are not that you are so, I'm so happy for you. All right. I'll stop talking, but keep going. <laughs> And I would say, don't give in to the reason that I think we go it alone is exactly what you hit on, which is fear. We fear that other people will feel like we are incompetent. We fear that other people will see us as, as not worth it or not up to the challenge. And that's just not true. I, I learned this lesson in undergrad the hard way. Mm-hmm. I went three years of my undergraduate career mm-hmm. and didn't realize that everyone who was getting A's in the course had a tutor. <gasps> And tutoring was free at my institution. And I had no idea. I thought tutoring was for for people who were failing or people who weren't doing well. But I found out that the people who really were in the know immediately signed up for the tutoring program as soon as they stepped on campus. They didn't wait for there to be a problem. They got help. They enlisted their team early on. And that's the same exact approach that we should be using now. Can I share one other example of that? Please. Oh, my gosh. Okay. One other example of that is one of the great things that Hopkins does when you show up as a junior faculty member is they try to tie you into a writing accountability group or a rat, a WAG. (laughs) That really worked well for me. And in between the WAGs, when I wasn't working with an accountability group, having even self-accountability was really helpful. So one of the things that I believe either the book Writing a Lot, which is what they recommend you to read as you start the WAG, and I believe it was also mentioned in that that book from earlier from the National Center for Faculty Diversity and Development, is to track your writing. Kim, I literally went from writing two papers a year to 10 papers a year simply by tracking every single day in a spreadsheet just the number of words that I was writing what projects I was working on. And because I'm a data nerd, I would pull that into Stata and I would look at the patterns to see when I was most productive and when I wasn't. You did not. Oh my gosh. I love that. I definitely did. But 
even without the state apart, just the simple act of every day, I look and I say, how much time did I spend writing? Did I spend an hour? Did I spend two hours? And how many words did I write in that time has been really helpful and reflective because I feel a personal shame when I look at my spreadsheet and I say, oh my goodness, I haven't written all week. This is my job. I am primarily a writer and an academic. This is what I need to be doing. And I have not done my job this week. Really critical. I think every single person, as soon as, literally as soon as they are ready to start their dissertation, should start this practice and then carry that through their time in faculty. Well, Lorraine, I am so impressed with you. And thank you for plugging the WAGS, folks. Um, You can go to wagyourwork.com to learn more about WAGS. But yeah, when I, have the I have the there's a book there you'll see and the paper that I wrote and um with my colleague Karma Fouché from University of Illinois Chicago when we came up with the concept of WAGs back in gosh 2011 but I'm always so tickled when I hear people have heard about and use WAGs so yeah wagyourwork.com you can learn about it it's just a structure to put in place to implement the things that Paul Sylvia and how to write a lot he has a process, but I kind of put into place the structure of how to do it. So I'm so pleased it's working for you and it has worked for you. Yes. Lorraine, you said something earlier, though, that I want to get back to. And it was so important. You said, you, and you told that fascinating story of undergrad, people in the know got the tutoring. This That concept of in the know, to me, is so critical because you don't know what you don't know. How do I get to be in the know of things? So all those junior faculty members out there who are coming into a new institution, trying to set up their research agenda, trying to build their clinical practice, trying to be good teachers and, and generate scholarship, how does one get to be in the no club? This is where mentoring is so important. Hmm. This is where relying on the wisdom of senior faculty members is so important. I was thankful that when I came into Hopkins, I came in on a KO1. So I had my mentorship team baked in. And from day one, I was meeting with a senior faculty member every single week. I know not everyone will have that luxury, but I definitely think thinking about a team of senior people that you can tap to for questions from time to time, for input, for guidance, for pushback. Those are the folks who can tell you and see the blind spots that you won't even know are there because you haven't been doing this long enough to know. Mm. So leaning into your mentorship team, as well as looking into peer mentorship. Perfect. Many times the advice that I got from was from peers. In fact, even getting my first KO1 was because someone else who was an assistant professor at the time sent me their application as a template. Mm. So going back to that, thinking about who that team is and setting yourself up for success with that initial team. That should include senior mentors that are going to be invested in you, as well as peers who understand and who are very close to what you're going through and can put you onto resources that they know about. That's exactly right. Well, you're you're hitting all, all the key points in faculty development that we talk about all the time, and mentoring is right up there, that it's so important to think of multi-layered mentoring teams, as you point out. You're exactly right, Lorraine. So is there anything else you'd like to share with the community? For me, what has really kept me grounded is, I will say, one old practice and one new practice. One old practice is ensuring that I get some form of exercise nearly every day, mm-hmm. even if it's just walking up and down my the steps in my house. I need to be moving, and I personally have rediscovered 
tennis as a sport that I loved. I did tennis for a year in high school, literally one year in high school, and then didn't touch a racket for over 20 years. (laughs) But right before the pandemic, I had discovered tennis was going to tennis lessons in the summer. And then at the start of COVID, which would have been during a time of indoor tennis, we didn't do anything. But then when the summer came back, we were able to re-engage in tennis. It's an outdoor sport. And Honestly, the idea is to keep a ball away from someone else. So there's social distance baked into tennis. Um, So being involved in playing tennis a couple of times a week has been really great for my heart. It's been really great as a a release from all the other things that I do and a great stress reliever. So for me, making sure I have some sort of physical activity and if I can, tennis has been really helpful for me. The other thing has been meditation. I discovered meditation because of Hopkins. So at some point, a couple of years ago, the, and I don't remember the exact name, but I believe it's the, maybe it's the health and wellness program at Hopkins had announced that they were including the Calm app, which is an app yeah. on your phone for meditation right. for free as part of our insurance. Right. At first, I was really leery. I grew up in a conservative Christian home where I think any sort of meditation seemed mystical, right? Right. It seemed like something that you would do and are you supposed to levitate? You know, I really (laughs) thought it was going to be this scary mystical thing that was invoking some sort of magic. But I realized that meditation was a lot like prayer time that I grew up with. And prayer time was something that my family did every day. It was just a different way of reframing, maybe a, you know, a taking out some of the religion, but still keeping some of the focus and the concentration mm-hmm. and even just the time of gratitude yeah. for the things that are around you. So I use the Calm app almost every day. It's 10 minutes a day. And I've decided that if I can't find 10 minutes to spend on my mental health, mm. something is very wrong. And I need to recalibrate and adjust. Wow. That's shameful. That's shameful. And it's a telltale sign that I am overworked if I cannot find 10 minutes to calm my mind and to spend some time being thankful and grateful, even amid all that's going on with the pandemic, even amid losses and challenges. I need to spend that time and invest that time in myself. Hmm. So those are the things that have kept me together. Wow. I love you. You just said it so well. If I can't find 10 minutes, that's a sign something's wrong. Right. So such an important lesson. And you have another story. I would love to hear a story. Sure. So this is really about the emphasis on taking breaks and how important that can be. And that's another reason why things like meditation and playing tennis are so important. So I did my doctorate at Harvard School of Public Health. And I was in the last term of taking classes and I had a term paper due for one of the most difficult classes that we had to take in our degree program. Mm. Everyone is in the computer lab typing furiously at their computers and I'm staring at my computer and I'm trying to get through what am I going to finish saying in this paper? How do I make this strong? I'm tired. It's 11 o'clock PM. I have no idea how long, how much longer we're all going to be here. And so I got up and I left and I went to the gym. I literally went to the, the, the YMCA in Boston, which is where I was going to the gym at the time 
and I worked out for an hour. Wow. As I walked out of the room, everyone's eyes were on me walking out, thinking, what is she doing? We have this paper due in the morning, and I know she's not done. They knew I wasn't done. No one was done. So I left, and I took a break. Just that hour of exercise completely cleared my mind. It was like flushing out junk in my system. And I came back, finished the paper in two hours, went home, went to sleep. Everybody else, my roommates, showed back up at like six or seven o'clock in the morning and said, I can't believe you left. And then somehow you got it done. And I said, I think it was because I took that break. It just gave me time to reset. So I would emphasize, even if it feels like I have all of this work to do, I can't take 10 minutes. Mm. I can't take an hour to exercise. Think about how much more efficient you'll be after you take that break and consider that as your incentive and reward. Yes. I love it. Oh, my gosh. You have such great stories. Thank you. (laughs) Baptized by fire sometimes, right? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Lorraine Dean, I I just love have loved talking to you and learning from you and talk. My friend hates that when I say talking to somebody. You don't talk to people. You talk with them. I've loved talking with with you. (laughs) I've enjoyed talking with you and listening to you and hearing about your steps and how you set up, set yourself up for success, collaborating, writing and wags and mentoring and a bit of old and new tennis and mindfulness. I, I, I think the same thing. I, um, took up some golf lessons this summer. As much as I hate golf, it was a way to get outside and learn from someone versus being the teacher all the time. I was the, the student. So that helped me out just like you, something new that I took up. But this has been wonderful. I've learned a lot from you. I'm so happy for you. You are such a great example of success. And I know people out there I love the, the reference, the book. You want to say that book name again? That was the Black Academics guide to winning tenure without losing your soul. Okay. I wrote that down too. That is great. I'm going to check that out. Thank you so much folks and the podcast land faculty factory podcast. You have been learning from and listening to and listening to me talk with Dr. Lorraine Dean. Lorraine, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.